There we go. Open. Uh, welcome to the Tuesday night Bible study. Those of you that are watching this recording, we are in the book of First Corinthians, and we are in chapter eleven. We left off about uh, verse thirteen. The little backstory is First Corinthians uh, is to a church that is very troubled. They're very fleshly. They're very uh, shallow believers. A lot of them, and they've got all kinds of problems. They have written a letter, at least one, to the Apostle Paul to ask, "What do we do about these situations?" He's answering that letter and adding a bunch of other stuff as well. So he has asked. Uh, he's been asked about women wearing head coverings. We covered that all last week, no pun intended, and about men not wearing a head covering in church when they pray and when they uh, are prophesying or teaching. Um, so we covered all that. The second part, starting in uh, right around verse 12, um, uh, let's see, well, it's actually before that, about hair length, that women in that uh, era 2000 years ago were trying to look like men and some men were trying to look like women does that sound familiar to anybody here um so uh, we can't blur those lines um so uh to pick it up in verse 11 he gives the other side of the coin because what he has said previously is the same thing steve the pastor here preached on sunday which is about marriage and the roles of women and men it, at the cross, they are absolutely equal in nature. They're human beings. But like anything, a policeman is a human being like I am, but he has a role that allows him to have authority over me. Same with my boss or my teacher or my father when I was a boy, etc. There are certain roles that have to be played because someone has to be in charge. So Paul has said that the head uh, at the beginning of the chapter um yeah verse three in chapter 11 i want you to realize that the head of every man is christ the head of the of the woman is man and the head of christ is god even in the godhead there's an authority thing christ is equal to the father he says so in the gospel of john and elsewhere many places but in terms of role someone has to be um the one that sort of is in authority so um, we've come to this hair thing. Back to the authority issue in verse 11 of chapter 11, he gives the other side of the coin. God is so balanced. Nevertheless, uh, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. We need each other. Here it comes for verse 12. As woman came from man, meaning Eve out of the side of Adam, a rib kind of thing. So also man is born of woman, except for Adam, every man uh, came from their mom, right? But everything comes from God. Verse 13, that's where we're going to pick it up. So that I can tell that you're awake, say amen. Good. And those of you on Zoom, I see you waving. I see one amen sign. Beautiful. Verse 11, judge for yourselves. He's still on the long hair, short hair question. Uh, and it's just about over uh, the discussion. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him. But if, a, but it, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory for long hair is given to her as a covering. So we touched on these verses last time. Uh, and the nature of things. I did some research, and in virtually every society on planet Earth, 
almost always, even when men had longer hair, the women had even longer hair. Um, I couldn't find a society where the men had longer hair categorically than the women. So there's supposed to be distinction in the genders, if you will. Um, so uh, if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him just because of the length of the hair. And by the way, they don't mention what length is the proper length, do they? But there ought to be those distinctions. The man ought not to have hair longer than a woman or most women is the whole point. Um, and if, if a woman has long hair, it is her glory for, this is the last part of verse 15. For long hair is given to her as a covering in Greek that can be translated. Long hair is given to her instead of a covering. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, there are some on the back table there. We're in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, picking it up right around verse uh, 13, 14, 15, right in there. Uh, long hair is given to her as a covering. So many from verse 15, many, not all, but many scholars have said that this means that where in a culture, a woman wearing or not wearing something on her head in church is not a big deal, which is the case in the West, right? And if you see a woman in church without a head covering, does anybody think, wow, what a rebellious woman that is? No. In that culture, though, you would. And there's still cultures in the, this world that they would think the same thing. Um, in a culture where those distinctions aren't there, the, I, I believe, and many scholars believe, that a woman's hair is her covering. Um, so, to, as he said earlier in this chapter, so to shave it off or to cut it very, very short so as to look like a man, uh, it's not becoming of her, not, not right, so to speak. Um, so the long hair can be that covering. Like I said, it, it can be translated instead of uh, verse, whatever that was, the end of verse 15. For long hair is given to her instead of or as a covering. Um, okay, verse 16, though, as he closes the subject, if anyone wants to be contentious about this, that means argumentative, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. What he's saying is, Right now, as I'm writing this, this is the norm. I don't know, he's saying, of any churches where the women don't wear a head covering when they pray or prophesy, and the men do wear one. Generally, the rule was then, men don't, women do, are to wear a head covering as a sign of respect that they're under authority sort of thing. We covered that last week. Um, okay, I'm just looking at my notes here. By the way, some scholars have even said about verse 16, if anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, no do the churches of God. They're even saying, so don't be contentious about it, right? Don't be argumentative. This is not the hill to die on, so to speak. Now, a new uh, subject matter uh, is going to come up, and it is the Lord's Supper. Some call it communion. We call it the Eucharist, right? We'll get into what that word means and what have you. So. What's going on is in that culture, in our churches, let me start here, in our culture. In our culture, we have a church service. We sing some songs of praise or some announcements sometimes. There's usually a sermon, scripture reading, prayer, all of that. And if once a month in this church, we have the Lord's Supper, right? Commanded by God, by the way. He never said how often to do it. 
He just said, do it in remembrance of me. We'll look at some scriptures in a second. And Paul's going to tell you what he learned from the Lord himself. We'll get into that as well. But the point is, uh, it's a, a part of our church service, isn't it? In that era and in Corinth, they were doing a separate event from church called a love feast or agape feast. Agape is one of the Greek words for love. It's the highest form of love. It's the unconditional love God has for us and we're to have for him and for others. They would have a love feast. Okay. You say, what's that? Think potluck. It's exactly what it is. Everybody would bring food. The point was a big communal sharing love dinner for the body of Christ, this church. Got the picture so far? At the very end of the love feast, they would do what we would call communion or the Lord's Supper. You follow? Where they're remembering specifically Christ's sacrifice on the cross, his broken body, his shed blood for the sins of the world. So. What's going on, just like in everything else in Corinth, they've managed to mess this up badly, okay? And there's all kinds of bad stuff going on. Paul's going to even say, the way you're handling it, it'd be better if you don't even do it. Let's, let's read it, and then we'll, we'll talk about it. Verse 17, he introduces this uh, in a kind of a harsh way. In the following directives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings do more harm than good. Can you imagine that? In the first place, and then we'll talk about each verse. In the first, verse 18, in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions or schisms among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. That's an odd verse. I'll, we'll explain it. Verse 20. So then when you come together, this is a harsh thing. It is not the Lord's Supper you eat. And someone might, ask, might, might answer, oh, no, it is. You don't understand, Paul. It is. And he's saying, not the way you're doing it. Watch. Verse 21. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. Then he's going to go on starting in verse 23 and explain what the Lord's Supper is supposed to be. But let's talk about the abuses of the Lord's Supper first then we'll talk about what it is. So he says he has no praise for them. <clears throat> Their meetings do more harm than good. So uh, this is supposed to be a very joyous, very loving, sharing, open thing. What's the problem here? Okay, there are many. Number one, culturally, Corinth is a diverse place. You got really rich people there, business people, you got middle-class types, you have ultra-poor people, and then you even have slaves that are poorer than the poor people. For some in that church, this meal, the love feast, would be the best meal they have until the next one comes along. 
because the rich people are bringing the really nice stuff, right? And the poor people bring what they can. We have half a loaf of stale bread. I guess we'll bring it, honey. It's something, right? And so there are differences in status. And of course, rich people generally hang around with their rich, powerful buddies, right? As poor people hang around with their less powerful, poor friends, okay? It's supposed to be an intermingling and sharing and loving thing. It's turned into a big clicky mess. You know what a click is? Remember high school? My high school, I could name you all the different clicks we had, right? I'm sure you could too. Okay, so um, the first problem he mentions is when you come together, there are divisions. Did anybody see the humor in that? When you come together, there are divisions. What? It makes no sense, right? It's an oxymoron. There are divisions, cliques, and to some extent, I believe it. Earlier in this book, in chapter one, he talked about the divisions. There it was theological. Do you remember? I'm of Apollos. Well, I'm, I follow Peter. Well, I follow Paul. I follow Jesus. Remember all that? And there, the, the point is, we're the right ones. We follow Peter. He knew Jesus. Apollos didn't. Oh, yeah, well, Apollos is a better speaker than, so we're the right ones. Already people dividing. In our culture, on the news, do you watch the news? Do you watch media and different things? Some people are going, no, good for you. But if you do, there's an effort to divide us so many different, along racial lines, along financial lines, along religious lines, along gender lines, right? Being woke or not being woke. I could go on and on. Don't get me started. So there's divisions. The last place there should be divisions is a church because it's a family. This is your sister, your brother that we're talking about. So no doubt, verse 19, there have to be differences among you to show which of you has have God's approval. You say, what? By those divisions occurring, it's clear to people who watch, who observe the church, who doesn't have God's approval. Who did he mention? People that are coming there, hoarding their own food for them and their rich pals, eating before the others even get in there, not waiting, sharing, being eating all together, um, getting drunk at a church thing. You say, why is all this going on? How crazy are these people? Culture. Listen, Corinth had the temple to Aphrodite up on a hill, giant, amazing building with a thousand temple prostitutes. There, pagan worship went on, which included, by the way, getting drunk, the use of, believe it or not, drugs in some cases, also sometimes loud, ecstatic um, worship going on, and the chanting of things over and over to get you in an altered state of consciousness, um, and um, all kinds of other chaos there at a pagan thing. Well, these people used to go there. Now they're Christians. They're sort of bringing that stuff into the church. So let's see. Um, the Lord's Supper, may I say, was more central in worship, I believe, 2,000 years ago than it is today. Today, we set aside five or 10 minutes for it and we explain it, which is all good. Don't get me wrong. Um, but it was a much more central thing. 
in in worship that day in that day um we already talked about the potluck thing so let's look again at what's going on but but let's talk about verse 19 first there has to be differences among you to show which of you have god's approval who do you think has god's approval the drunk guy the glutton guy the people that are not sharing their food, we're rich, we brought the really nice food, it's not for you, Harry, you're a slave, go get a piece of bread from somebody and leave us alone. It's supposed to be free offering of food, right? The ones that have God's approval are the ones that are doing it the right way, lovingly, sharing what they have, right? Waiting for each other to eat all together. Um so he, he goes so far as to say in verse 20, when you're coming together, doing it that way, I'm inserting those words, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. You may think it is. It's the last thing on your mind. Uh, look at verse 21. For when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. You don't wait for the other people and you don't share the food. As a result, one person remains hungry. Who would that be? One of the poor people, right? Uh, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Mind you, this is at a church. You say, I just can't imagine. Believe me, some strange things can happen in church, right? God is a God of order. This is the last thing uh, God would want. The Bible's in Ephesians speaks of drunkenness. And it's interesting that uh, Paul equates, not equates, but compares drunkenness to being filled with the spirit. You say, boy, those are two opposite things. No kidding. Drunkenness, you are filled with alcohol, a substance that makes you, if you've ever been drunk, you know, out of control. You might say or do things when you're drunk that you would never do when you're sober, right? Under the control of something else. I might even add, if you're drunk, you are not only under the control of whatever you were drinking, you might be under the control of Satan who has a way easier way of tempting us when we're drunk, right? Or on drugs, whatever it may be. On the other hand, Paul compares it. Paul says, be not drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with, almost like he's saying, and I don't mean this in a, uh, in a uh, out of control sense, but be filled with, almost drunk with the Holy Spirit. Not out of control, but instead of being filled with wine, be filled with the Holy Spirit. I've told you this before, the tense in the Greek is very strange. It's be not drunk with wine, which is dissipation, meaning a waste of time and, you know, a loss, but be being filled. That's really how it reads in Greek, meaning continually filled, not with alcohol, with the Holy Spirit, because we're leaky vessels, right? I was filled with the Holy Spirit on Sunday when I was worshiping. Why was I so angry on Tuesday morning? Be being filled. Pray read the word and what have you. Um, so they are imitating the pagan feasts that they've grown up with, these people. Um, and so the rich people are bringing food and not sharing uh, with the poor people. There's definitely division and cliques uh, and selfishness going on. The last thing you'd want in a church. Some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, verse 21 Somebody's hungry and somebody else gets drunk. Verse 22, uh, I think and I, New American Standard has the next word is what, doesn't it? What? Exclamation point. Like what? I love that. It should be a what? Question mark, exclamation point. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? In other words, 
if you're going to get drunk, which you shouldn't, but if you are, why don't you do it at home? The main thing he really means is if you want to pig out, this is not the place to do it. You're bringing food to share. Pig out before you come so you're not hungry and you'll just eat a little and share the awesome food you eat with at your house with the poor people, right? The, the less uh, privileged and let them take some home. Just the opposite is occurring. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? Humiliating, right? I'm poor. I come up to the table and I see, oh, you guys have turkey and mashed potatoes. And they, this is for our friends here. And I feel like I'm not part of the family when I'm a Christian and I'm at the church. Um, okay. Humiliating those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. This is a letter Paul would have written, and the pastor of the Corinthian church would get up and have the job of reading, here's what Paul says to us about our love feasts, right? And the rich ones would know he's talking about us, right? But hopefully it was a wake-up call for them, and they changed their behavior. We don't know. Uh, okay, so it's disrespect for the church as God's temple. Keep in mind that's why he says, you think you're celebrating the Lord's Supper. You're not. Because the Lord's Supper is anything but this. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he's about to tell us, took bread, broke it. And he and his two close buddies, Peter and John, had it first? No. They waited till everybody was served and everybody ate together. I like that in our church and most churches, when they do communion, right, it's all passed out to everyone. And then something is said about it, and then we all partake together. Same thing with the cup. We'll get into the symbolism uh, and where it comes from as well. Um, let's see. I'm going back to the text here. Mm -hmm. Verse 23. Here comes Paul's teaching outside of the Gospels. This is the fullest teaching on what the Lord's Supper is all about. Keep in mind, in Christianity, there are only two, and I'm going to call them ordinances, not sacraments. Sacraments is a Catholic thing, which sounds like it has the idea of there's some merit in it in me if I can check off the box. First Holy Communion, um, uh, baptism as a baby, which is not biblical. First Holy Communion and um, confirmation. That's the one in eighth grade. Remember that where you pick a middle name and all that stuff? Okay. Marriage is a sacrament in Catholicism. And then last rites, there are others. The Lord's Supper, there are only two ordinances in biblical Christianity. One is the Lord's Supper. The other one is baptism. That's it. Are there other things we're commanded to do? Yes. But these two, in a sense, remember that Judaism births Christianity. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. In in Judaism, there are so many ceremonies and ways, specific ways you're supposed to wash your hands with not more than a than an eggshell full of water and all this purification stuff. We're down to just two. Baptism, which is easy. Keep in mind, what's the counterpart of baptism from Judaism? Circumcision, which is only for men. Baptism for men and women right? Believers are the ones who get baptized. That's why I don't believe in baptizing babies. Can you dedicate a baby to the Lord? Absolutely. In some sort of a ceremony? Sure. 
But when someone has a, a, an ability to understand the gospel and believes it and professes faith, we baptize them, right? Uh, the Lord's Supper is the other one. Here's Paul on the Lord's Supper. Let's read 23 to 26. Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Okay, good. Online, you still good? Anybody snoring? All right. Verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. I have to pause here for a second. Did you hear what he said? Paul's going to say, I'm going to tell you about communion, about the Lord's Supper. And he's, Paul's going to say, he just did. I got this from Jesus, from the Lord. You say, wait a minute. Did Jesus know Paul when Jesus was on the earth? No. Ever? Never. Okay. So Jesus dies, yes, and rises from the dead, having picked other apostles, yes, and ascends to heaven, correct. And Christianity starting to grow, and Saul is his original name, starts persecuting Christians. He's a religious zealot, a Jew who is a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin, like the Supreme Court of Israel. And he thinks Christianity is like a cult. He wants to wipe it out. And God gets a hold of him, Christ does, on the road to Damascus. You remember the story, right? And Saul becomes Paul. God changes his name, and he becomes a Christian. He, except for the Gospels, if you take the Gospels away, Paul writes two-thirds of the New Testament. It's an amazing thing. Um, but what's going on here? He says he got it from the Lord, and yet their lives didn't intersect. What's going on? Did Paul get a visit from the Lord on the road to Damascus and have a conversation with him? Yes. Was that the only conversation Paul had with Jesus? Heck no. There was a bunch of them. Turn from here, go two books to the right, to Galatians chapter one. I'll show you an interesting thing. At least to me it is. Most of you are asleep. But anyway, Galatians chapter one, mm -hmm. verse 11. He's going to explain to the Galatians where he got his knowledge. Keep in mind, before you read Galatians 1, Paul comes to faith in Christ. You would expect him to go right to Jerusalem, where he had a reputation for being kind of a bounty hunter to kill and persecute Christians. He doesn't, doesn't do it. Verse 11, Galatians 1. I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something man made up or uh, that man created. Verse 12. Listen to this. I did not receive it from any man. Stop right there. No one else can say that. I mean, I've read my own Bible, but I received it from a lot of other men, right? Preachers and teachers and people on the radio and on television. And I'm thankful that we, I had some good teachers. Paul says, I didn't get any of this from any man, nor was I taught it. Do you see that in Galatians 1? Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. What he explains uh, in Galatians is that as soon as he gets saved, he goes to Arabia and then to Damascus. He's going to say it in this book as well. And just studies his Old Testament scriptures, starts having visits somehow by revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ who teaches him firsthand. He saw the risen Christ, not only on the road to Damascus, but in a sense, he got a three-year Bible college degree with Jesus as his professor. Can you beat that? 
that beats Fuller Theological Seminary, doesn't it? In any case, I wanted you to understand why he's saying, now go back to 1 Corinthians uh, 11, verse 23. I received from the Lord. He's not kidding. Christ taught him everything he needed to know. Um, it is thought, by the way, that some or maybe three out of four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, haven't been written when Paul's writing this. So the tradition is orally passed on as the Gospels are being written. Keep that in mind. But he's going to reiterate what communion is all about. This is the passage most churches quote when they're doing uh, the Lord's Supper. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. And he's going to say it again. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. If your translation says broken for you, it's not in the Greek. Which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 25, in the same way after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this. Whenever you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, we won't do it, but I'll tell you, we could spend three weeks on those verses I just read. We won't. Don't worry. But we could. Um, so, first of all, he got this from the Lord. We already said that. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed. This is Thursday night. He dies Friday, most scholars think. I know there's people who think he died Wednesday or died Thursday. I'm a Friday guy, okay? Um, it's the night he's about to be betrayed. Don't think of Jesus as a hapless victim who's like, what, Judas? What, the Romans are here? They're going to arrest me? What's going on? He knows what he's about to go through. Seven separate trials, four civil, three religious. He's about to be spit on, mocked, beaten, whipped more than once. Um, he's about to be punched in the face, nailed to a cross, and he's going to bleed out and die of asphyxiation and of a broken heart. Jesus knows all of that. Had you interviewed him, 20 minutes before the end of the Lord's Supper, he would say, yeah, I know. Who's he thinking about? Is he freaking out about you guys? It's all about me. What's he worried about? His disciples. Matthew, uh, John chapter 14, 15, 16, 17 is him just talking to the disciples, teaching them because he knows I'm about to go. He's not concerned with himself. The night he's betrayed, he institutes, he in a way, borrows part of this Passover meal they're having and gives the elements, wine and bread, new symbolic meaning. Let's look at it. Verse 23, the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. This would be unleavened bread, no yeast. Got the picture? Leaven is a picture or yeast of sin. The Jews in the Passover meal eat unleavened bread God told them to do that because you're going to leave Egypt very quickly. So in such haste, you won't have time for the bread to rise. So you'll remember that you had to leave hastily. That bread would be like, almost like sort of pita bread, tortillas, some say crackers. Okay. Um, and it would be just lightly 
cooked, it would have the uh, sort of the broil marks on it. Some say crosses on it and holes on it, almost like the bread really is his body with holes and whip marks kind of thing. So he takes bread, this uh, unleavened bread. Jesus is acting as the host at a Passover meal. We see the bread, we see the wine. There was bread and wine in the Passover meal. Actually, four different cups of wine. Each cup meant something different. They also had bitter herbs to remember how bitter it was being in slavery in Egypt. Um, I don't want to go into the whole Passover thing now, but this is the tail end of the Passover meal, cup number three. But we're not there yet. We're at the bread. He takes the bread. First thing he does, verse 24, is the same thing you should do at every meal. What is it? Give thanks, right? Don't take it for granted. Thank you, God. Yeah, but I worked for the this money that bought the food. Who gave you the talent and the ability and the health and the job? And the do I need to go on? Every gift comes from above. Bow your head and give thanks to God. Jesus gives thanks. Don't you think we should? When he had given thanks, he broke it, meaning he's got how many people there? His disciples, right? He's breaking off pieces of this tortilla, let's call it, okay? Um, how many know Jesus was Hispanic? Did you know that? No? Okay. Jesus, right? Okay. I'm kidding. Um, where were we? Okay. He broke it and said, this is holding up the bread, my body. He's not doing this. This is my body. That's kind of a dull. Why would he do that? They're going, yeah, we know that's your body. He's saying this bread is my body. Scholars, so-called, have had a field day with this. Okay. The Catholics believe when he says, this is my body, he means it a hundred percent literally. Has anybody here heard of transubstantiation? It's a fancy word. In Catholicism, it is Catholic doctrine that the, the, the communion wafer is literally just unleavened bread, Joe. That's all it is. I know. But in Catholicism, it undergoes a change molecularly and actually becomes the body. Not symbolic. It's the real body of Jesus. And the cup becomes the actual blood, transubstantiation, not that kind of trans, transubstantiation. It changes its substance, Catholics believe. Protestants do not believe this. Martin Luther believed in consubstantiation that um, it's in a spiritual sense, it's changed into his body. Okay. Then there was a guy after them called Zwingli who believed it's just symbolic. It represents his body. That's what most Protestants, including this one, believes today, having come out of Catholicism. So he says, this is my body. Uh, and he sort of is adopting the Passover bread and giving it new meaning. This is my body, next phrase, which is for you. A lot of people think God's against me. Look at the pain I've been through in my life. God himself is in human flesh sitting with his disciples. And you know what he says? My body, I, 
I'm for you. I'm not against you. My body is about to be given for you. Substitute the word for for the word instead of, right? Because what he goes through on that cross, the separation from God, the pain and suffering is what I deserve as a sinner, what you deserve. So for me is his body. Instead of me on the cross, instead of me suffering, instead of me separated from God, it's him. This is my body, which is for you. And then he says, do this in remembrance of me. Do what? Get together with some other Christians, right? It's usually not alone. If you're in a jail cell in solitary confinement, do it alone if you can't be with anybody else. But it could be two people that get together. It doesn't have to be in a church. If we can't go to church, we're camping, Jeff and I. Let's do the Lord's Supper. It's Sunday. And we just get a piece of bread and break it. And we talk about what it means. And we are remembering, not just remembering, yeah, I remember Jesus died on the cross. Okay, pass the potatoes. No, in a, in a way, we are reliving it. We are understanding with great thanksgiving what he did and that it was monumental, right? Um, most people who are world famous have monuments. Actors have their handprint and their name uh, in LA, right? You can go walk those a little, whoop-dee-doo, look at how small his hands are or whatever. Or there's giant monuments to them and stone statues and Jesus didn't do that. The odd thing here, don't miss it, is he wants us to remember his death. Odd, isn't that? Imagine if uh, uh, somebody had achieved amazing things and said, now, after I'm gone, what I want people to remember is the way I died and why I died. What that tells you is, although he came to the earth to live the perfect life you and I couldn't live, to live completely sinlessly, although he came to give of himself in every possible way, although he came to teach, although he came to do miracles, all those things were peripheral. Just on the way, he couldn't resist. Oh, she's blind. Come here, daughter. And he would touch her eyes and heal her. Oh, look at him. He can't walk. Bring him to me. He couldn't resist. Little kids. But the reason he came was to die. Weird, huh? What's your mission? I'm here to die for the sins of the world. You're what? Pretty odd, right? He's the Passover lamb, the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. What do the lambs do? Do you know what they do? They die. Bloody deaths. Jesus adopts the Passover and says, oh, by the way, this is Passover meal that they're eating. Um, and they're eating it at night early, a day early. The Because the lambs are going to be slaughtered tomorrow, Friday at noon. Uh, Friday all day, really, noon to three especially. When he's on the cross, bleeding out, they're sacrificing thousands of lambs. And the real lamb of God is on the cross. What's your point, Joe? It's interesting, minor point, but I always find this fascinating. It's the Passover meal. You know what's missing? Well, you got the bread, you got the wine, yeah. The lamb. They never talk about the lamb. Did they eat it? Probably. But all the gospel writers leave out the lamb because he is the lamb. This is the last real true Passover, right? From then on, our Passover is the Lord's Supper. It's a solemn thing. We ought to do it with great remembrance of what he's done and great 
thanksgiving. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. By the way, think logically. If Jesus is sitting there and he's got a piece of bread and he says, this is my body, you could say, and you wouldn't be wrong, no, no, this is your body. You must mean symbolically, and he would go, correct, right? Um, he can't mean, this is my body, this isn't. It's a symbolic thing, right? Just like baptism doesn't save us, it's symbolic of our death to our old self. We disappear under the water. Where's Joe? He went down there, uh, and we come up washed with long hair, you look like a drowned rat. But anyway, you come up washed showing it's like a resurrection. The old me is dead. The new me has been washed. I want you to see that um, as a testimonial to what he's done for me. That's baptism. Same thing here. This is a public remembrance. I'm going to show you in a second that the Lord's Supper, listen, is a sermon. And guess who preaches it? Not the pastor. All of us. I'll show you in a second. In the same way, verse 25, after supper, he took the cup saying, this would be a cup of wine. The third one, the cup of remembrance. This cup is the new covenant. And we have to discuss what's a covenant. We'll get to that. This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this. Whenever you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord, talks about himself in the third person, the Lord's death, Paul does, until he comes. Okay. First of all, what's a covenant? A covenant is a promise. A covenant is a testament. You ever heard so-and-so died, Harry died, and he's got his last will and testament. It's a promise of, I want my car to go to Tom, and I want Randy to have my golf clubs or whatever, right? Randy's going, eh, not that great, huh? Um, so a uh, a covenant is a deal, basically, between one or more, uh, two or more, sorry, people where there's a promise to do something. There's two types of covenants. Conditional covenant. I'm going to make a covenant with Jeff here, who's a skilled builder, to build me a garage. If he'll do that, that's his end of the bargain, I'll give him $50,000. Must be a nice garage, huh, Jeff? Um, that's a two-way thing, okay? There are unilateral, one-sided covenants where Jeff knows that uh, my wife and I are hurting financially, and he comes to our house and says, I just want to give you this $10,000. And I said, what do I have to do for it? And he says, I just feel bad for you guys, and I love you, and I just want to do it. One-sided. There's no, I'll give you this, Joe, if you, there's no if. You understand what I mean? Now, it turns out there's several covenants in the Bible, not Old Testament, we think of Okay, the Moses with the law, right? Going into the promised land, the Ten Commandments. Yes, that's a covenant. That's the Mosaic covenant. But there's ones before that. He makes a covenant, uh, God does, uh, for with Noah. Did you know that? Uh, the Noahic covenant, sometime called. Uh, he, he promises he'll never destroy the world with a flood again. If Noah, no, it's unilateral. He just says to Noah, I'll never flood the earth again. Unilateral, one-sided from God. He does give Noah some rules to live by. Genesis 8 to 9 talks about that. Then he makes a covenant with Abraham. Unilateral, one-sided. It's not Abraham. If you, he just says, 
I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to bless you. All nations will be blessed because of you. Your name's going to be great. One of your descendants is going to be the Messiah, is basically what he says. This is all Genesis 12 and following. All peoples will be blessed through you. I'll bless those who bless you and your people, and I'll curse those who curse you and your people. Abraham's going, what do I have to do for this? And God says, nothing. Unilateral covenant. With me so far? All of these point to the Lord Jesus, who is our ark that take us out of the flood of sin and judgment to safety. Uh, our belief in Jesus is from Abraham's descendant, his seed. Okay, then there's a covenant with Israel, the use of the promised land. This one is conditional. If you people live by my statutes and worship me and obey me, you'll have the whole promised land. And guess what? They keep messing up, the Jews. They just keep messing up. Uh, eventually, they are in bondage to other countries. Um, he talks about forgiving their sin one day in a future covenant that he gives to Jeremiah, where he says, uh, Jeremiah 31, hearts are going to be changed one day, and then people will want to be faithful. There'll be the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the new covenant, the Christian covenant. He gives a little shocker there where he explains that Gentiles will be included in this Jewish covenant, meaning non-Jews, right? All the covenants uh, were sealed with blood, where there was a sacrifice. This is a little gross. Be thankful we don't do this now. Any covenant, I make a covenant with Jeff. I'm going to buy his house. I'm going to pay him this much money. He's going to give me the house and the keys. We would slay an animal, sacrifice an animal, and Jeff and Doreen and Joe and Sherry would be sprinkled with the blood. You say, that's gross. That's symbolic as a way of saying, if I break my end of this covenant, may I die the way this animal did. You understand? Jesus's covenant with us is the new deal, the new covenant. Remember I said earlier, a covenant is a testament. Have you noticed your Bible is the Old Testament? All those covenants I just mentioned and the new testament the new deal the new covenant okay well did we live up to our bargain and did we deserve this covenant no but it's still here and we're still believers because the only requirement is believe learn the gospel faith we're saved by what faith and works no we're saved by faith. The works are the evidence that we have the faith. The works don't save us, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and 10. So, uh, yeah. First Peter 1, 2, that you obey Christ being sprinkled by his blood. Metaphorically, nobody's bloody here. It looks like, you know, we all have cleaned up pretty well, right? But metaphorically, we've been sprinkled with that blood. We're sealed. Let's take our two-minute break because we're late and stretch our bodies. And those of you on Zoom, I'll be back in two minutes. Don't go away. Welcome back to the Tuesday night Bible study. We are in, uh, let's see, 1 Corinthians 11, talking about the Lord's Supper. So instead of us being sprinkled with blood, Jesus sheds his own blood as the sacrifice. And fulfilling the Passover, 
Uh, let's see. Yeah, we talked about that. Mm -hmm. By the way, look at what Jesus says. Um, this is my, the new covenant in my blood. This is a human being with the audacity to say he's making a new covenant for all of humanity, all that believe, with the God of the universe. It would be blasphemy if he wasn't God, but he is, right? Okay, uh, continuing in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, the Eucharist and communion. By the way, the Eucharist, Eucharist, the word means giving thanks. That's what it means. Um, that's part of what the whole celebration is about. Um, Jesus establishes the Lord's Supper as something we are to do and repeat. What it never says in the Bible is, well, how often? There are churches that do the Lord's Supper once a week, okay? There are churches that do the Lord's Supper, wait for it, once every day. There's churches that do the Lord's Supper once a year. Are they wrong or who's right? It doesn't say. It just says do it in remembrance. God's not counting. Oh, they only did it four times this year. We do it here on the first Sunday of the month. Uh, just wanted to mention that. Um, Jesus notarizes his will, his testament, and when he dies, his estate is available to everybody that believes. Kind of a beautiful thing. So he makes the bread a symbol of his body, which is broken, right? Elsewhere it says his body's broken, not his bones, but is pierced on his side, right? Torn up in a sense with the whip and what have you. And his blood is shed. That's the cup. By eating it, he could say, just look at a piece of bread and remember. Why eat it? Partly because it's the Passover meal, but partly because the symbolism is beautiful. I don't want to just look at it. I want to totally take it in. You ever heard you are what you eat? I want to take it in as a memory of and an honoring of what Christ has done for me. Um, verse 26, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, here it comes. You proclaim. The word proclaim is the same word for preach in Greek. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I want to show you that the Lord's Supper, including the preparation he's about to talk about, that we're supposed to be doing before it happens very important they weren't doing it that the lord's supper with that preparation we look at listen the past christ died on the cross for me he took the rap right i had the rap sheet he died in my place he suffered so i wouldn't have to he became poor they stripped him of his clothes he lost everything so that i wouldn't have to he lost his father on the cross, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? Why have you forsaken me? So that I would have fellowship with him. He took the punishment for sins he never committed that I did. That's past with me so far. Future is at the end of this verse, and then we'll get to present. Whenever you eat this bread, whenever, right? Once a month, once a week, once a day, once a year. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, and he doesn't just mean drink wine and have a little piece of bread, French bread. He means with the purpose of remembering, thanking God for the amazing thing Jesus did. 
You, notice not the preacher, you proclaim, you preach the Lord's death until he comes. Did you see future there too? Till he comes. What do you mean? The second coming. Future. Past. Future. But you're proclaiming the thing Jesus wanted you to remember. And it's not the miracles. It's not the teaching. All that stuff's important. Don't get me wrong. Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever given. Matthew 5, 6, 7. Go home and read it tonight. You proclaim the most important thing is death. Which, by the way, looked like we got him now to his enemies. Right? The Romans, we got him now. Is he dead? He's dead. The Jews come down from the cross. It's weird. Remember, they say this in Matthew. He saved others. He can't save himself. It's interesting. The truth is, he could have come down off the cross and knocked everybody down, right? Why didn't he? Because in a sense, he couldn't, because this is why he showed up. It's all about the life of self-sacrifice. Now take the broader picture and remember, we're talking about Corinthians who are getting drunk, hoarding food, and no wonder Paul says, you know what, don't even bother. You're making it worse, not better. The whole point has been missed by you drunken, gluttonous idiots, right? That's not in the Bible, but anyway, you proclaim his death until he comes, second coming of the Lord Jesus. We look forward to it. You know who else looks forward to it? He does. He tells them at the Last Supper, I'm not going to drink wine with you again, ever, until we drink it anew, in a whole new way, in the kingdom, after he returns. What's that? The marriage supper of the Lamb. Who's getting married? Jesus. Did you know Jesus was engaged? Did you hear the news? Yeah. Who's he engaged to? His bride. How is she? Eh, it's you people. It's me. I think you could have done better, but where is bride? Amen. He's engaged. In that supper, you'll see Jesus eat bread and wine, and it'll come full circle, won't it? Beautiful. Okay. So that's the Eucharist. That's communion. That's the deep, rich meaning that we just sort of glibly go, oh, it's communion time. I'm getting past the little thing. Couldn't they give me a bigger cracker than this? I don't know. That's what they have. Okay. And the cup, is that it for the cup? Catholicism used to go and drink from the cup and it was a germ fest, right? Remember that? Or they would stick the wafer in your mouth, the body of Christ. Amen. Or they would hand it to you and then you touched it. When I was a kid, I was taught you can't touch it with your hand. Does anybody remember that? I just go, I put it on your tongue. I hang around. Don't I? I remember this is so bizarre. Don't chew it with your teeth. That's disrespectful. Let it dissolve. If I'm stuck to the roof of my mouth, I can't use my. Can I? It's symbolic, folks. It's the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Does it matter that it's not wine? No. In some South American countries, Walter Martin used to talk about this. He went to Central America and South America and went to churches where they couldn't afford wine, very poor churches. And they did, I wait for it, bread and Coca-Cola. Who has grape juice? Welch's isn't even in Ecuador yet. Bread and Coca-Cola. It's not the stuff. It's the meaning behind the stuff. Amen. Okay. Um, let's keep rolling. Are you still awake? Say amen. Okay, good. You guys on Zoom, are you awake?
Okay. Oh, I see. Oh, yeah, there you are. Okay. Uh, whenever you eat it, you're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. It's a weird thing, isn't it? Because we think of death, we think somber. How sad. Oh, he, did he die? Uh, how did he die? Oh, we're actually celebrating his death, which was, get this for uh, uh, an oxymoron or a, a paradox. His death was the worst thing that ever happened on planet Earth. God, the creator, the God of the universe came to planet Earth as a human being, and we beat him up and killed him. That's the worst. He was innocent. That's the worst thing that ever happened. God came and died for the sins of the world and saved billions of people. That's the best thing that ever happened on planet. The best thing, right? Oxymoron. Uh, so then, verse 27, I better look at my notes. I'm probably going to get home. I often come home from Bible study, review my notes and realize, stupid, I didn't say that. I forgot to say that. So uh, I do my best. You know what I'm saying? Communion is something that is only for believers. If, if you're in a church and they're doing communion and, and there's unbelievers there, they usually announce, this isn't something magical. Don't take it if you're not a believer. It has meaning for us. It's the reason we're saved. That's what we're celebrating. He died for me. Unbelievers just go, looks like a very small little cracker to me. And, right? It has no meaning. Um, we already talked about all that transubstantiation. What about it being his literal body? My answer to that is Jesus also said, I am the vine. So does he have leaves? If you take his shirt off, he's got leaves here. He said he was the door. Does he have hinges on one side of his body? No, Joe, he's saying that symbolically. Amen. Same with this is my body, right? Okay. Um, we preach a sermon when we take communion. We proclaim it. To whom? To each other? to remind each other, to unbelievers that are there, to the devil, get lost. We're saved by the blood of Christ. We're celebrating what you thought was a victory. You were so wrong. It's awesome. Okay, moving on. I got a lot of notes here. Can you tell? We ought to take communion solemnly, reverently, understanding and remembering the meaning of it. Okay, verse 27. So then, application, whoever eats the bread and drink or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Ouch. People have misunderstood this verse. They see that word there, unworthy. And they think, gosh, I, do you feel worthy? I don't, I don't really feel worthy. I got news for you. There's only one who's worthy. He's the one that died, right? Christ. You're not worthy. I'm not worthy. It's not about perfection. It's he doesn't say whoever's worthy or unworthy. It's taking it in an unworthy, eating it in an unworthy manner. The question is, what is that? In context, can we already agree getting drunk before you do the Lord's Supper is unworthy? Amen hogging food from your poor friends so that your rich buddies can get it is unworthy pigging out before everybody gets it let's eat all the good stuff because they're coming in right now unworthy 
misses the whole point, right? What else would be unworthy? Living in perpetual, unrepentant sin. I get drunk every day, but I'm taking the Lord's Supper. I'm a thief at work constantly. I'm cheating on my wife. I, uh, I have unrepentant sin. I stole from him and he doesn't even know and I'm never telling him. God bless you, brother, right? Don't take communion. Go make it right. In Catholicism, you go to confession. You're supposed to, before you have communion, confess your sins, right? The Bible teaches what I call spiritual breathing, which is sounds all new agey and it's not. It, you know what it means? Don't, don't wait till Saturday to confess your sins that you committed on Monday. On Monday at 3.15, if you commit a sin, you know when you should confess it? At 3.15 on Monday, Lord, I'm so sorry I said that. I, that was wrong. I'm going to tell him I'm sorry, but I want to tell you first, I recognize it's sin. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I confess that it was wrong. I turn from that sin. Next, move on, right? So we self-examine, I want to show you in this passage, whoever eats the cup, uh, eats the cup, that would be weird, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Does he mean the literal body and blood or the symbolic? Both. He's kind of saying this. Here we are celebrating that Christ took our punishment for sin which makes me want to live for him and not sin as much as I can possibly not sin. That's what I want to do. And yet, if you're doing it in an unworthy manner, you're sinning. You're in a way, a big reason he had to go to the cross, right? Um, when Mel Gibson made the movie, The Passion of the Christ, which is going to be on TV, I saw soon because Easter, right? Um, when they filmed the scene, a close-up of Jesus's wrist on the wood of the cross and a, a, a roman hand with a spike how many know what i'm going to say he insisted use my hand i want to be the guy holding the spike because i'm a sinner i'm part of the reason he had to go on that cross so in the movie if you watch and you see the hand with the spike and the and it's going it's kind of gross and bloody and splattering it's mel gibson's hand okay that'll be on the test you might want to write that down um Verse 28, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. I'll tell you another way to do it unworthily. Eh, just kind of matter of fact, no big deal. It's a big deal, right? We don't have a lot of ceremonies and rituals in Christianity, just two, baptism, that's a big deal. The Lord's Supper, which we repeat, it's a big deal. Think about it pray about it. That's why there's a little silent reflection time in most churches after you take each of the elements. Examine themselves. Now, that's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because chances are, when we examine ourselves, we grade on a curve. I might point the finger at him and say, what a sinner. I can't believe some of the stuff he does I do some of the same stuff, but when I do it, it's, it's not really that bad because I grade on a curve with me. It means examine yourself, compare yourself to what Bible calls itself a mirror. 
right? The more you read it, you start, it starts pinching because you realize, oh yeah, I'm doing that. Examine ourselves, take time to confess. I had a bad week, Lord, as you know, I'm sorry. I confess that sin. Thank you that your son died for me. I'm going to take the elements to remember it again, and it's going to have meaning for me. It doesn't make you more of a Christian by doing it, but we are to be doing it in a worthy manner and examine ourselves before, not after. Verse 29, for those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, without appreciating and being grateful for the meaning, eat and drink judgment on themselves. What was supposed to be a joyous, loving thing turns into I'm eating and drinking judgment on myself. He's saying, don't do this in a cavalier, casual manner. This is the real deal, if you will. Now, here comes the shocker. You ready? Verse 30. That's why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep in the Bible, spiritually, is always a metaphor for death. Now read those two verses together. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, without recognizing this is a serious thing, the ones that are getting drunk, the ones that are being stingy with their food to other to poor people, the ones that are pigging out so that others can't eat, the ones that are showing favorites all during the Lord's Supper are eating and drinking judgment on themselves. If you read that first verse 29 and thought, yeah, you mean like judgment and the judgment day, don't you? No. He means in this lifetime. Here's what he doesn't mean. He doesn't mean these people aren't saved. He doesn't mean these people aren't going to heaven, but he does mean as God's kids, God might spank you. He might discipline you. He disciplines his children. Verse 30, that's why, what's why? There's people that eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ. They eat in a cavalier manner. They eat with unconfessed, unrepentant hearts. They eat with bitter hearts. They drink judgment on themselves. That's why many among you are weak and sick. So there's people, is that the reason for every illness? No. But many are in that congregation weak and sick with diseases, with I'm going blind in one eye, with whatever it may be. And maybe a judgment on them, not a judgment, but a discipline thing from God on them. And a number of you have fallen asleep. Wait, are you saying saved people who are disobedient with the Lord's Supper, God might take them out early? That's what I'm saying. No, I'm not saying it. Paul's saying it, right? Kind of strange, isn't it? let's read verse 31, then we'll discuss it a little more. Verse 31. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, that self-examination before we do it, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, look, we are being what? Disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. Did you see that? It's not Harry took uh, communion in an unworthy manner and God killed him. He's in hell now. No, he's not. To, to discipline him, he took him out early so that 
uh, when we when we're judged this way by the Lord, we're being disciplined. You see that word in verse thirty-two? Okay. Now let's say um, it's years ago because we're older. You you and I, Jeff, and uh, you you have kids, and I have we had kids, Sherry and I, and let's say our kids were little, um, and Jeff's kids were misbehaving. Could I spank them? It would be frowned upon in our society, right? Could I ground them? You guys are grounded, both of you. It's not my job. Why not? I'm not their parent. You know who could discipline them? Doreen, Jeff, right? Same with our kids. I would resent it if you disciplined our kids. Tell me about it. I'll take care of it. The fact that these people are being disciplined shows, not judged, shows that they're being disciplined because they're his kids. Wayward, not doing well, but they're still saved. When we're judged in this way by the Lord, we're being disciplined so that we won't be sent to hell, finally condemned with the world. Finally, meaning at the end of the world, when Christ returns, one of the things he does besides setting up the kingdom is he judges all sin. So that they won't be judged in that judgment, he might take them out early. Hmm. Why? For the reasons we said, but also because in a congregation, let's say this is our little congregation and we're doing this, and Don and Chispa always get drunk and they always hoard the best food for their buddies, you know, and that's a bad example. I might start doing that or befriending Don so I get the better food or God has the right to discipline his kids, right? Peter says judgment has to begin where? With those sinners in the bars, no, in the house of God, start has to start here. So, discipline. So then, verse thirty-three, my brothers and sisters, you're still saved. He's reminding them, and we're a family. When you gather to eat, you should all eat together. That means wait. That means share. That means love. That might mean that the millionaire table over there should disperse and go sit with some of the poor people. Mingle. We're all one family. Um, if anyone who, go, who is hungry before the meal, he's talking about the guys that are pigging out. Anyone who's hungry should eat something at home beforehand so that when you meet together it may not result in judgment so he already came he had a sandwich at home he's not even that hungry he's more than willing to oh you guys come and come and sit at our table and have some of this turkey with gravy can you tell i like turkey with gravy okay um we still have a little time so we're going to at least introduce the subject of spiritual gifts in chapter 12 um, if you read the email, that's what we're talking about. I'm just looking at my other notes. Uh, yeah, we covered most of this. Corrective discipline that, uh, oh, you know what? Let's go there. Let's go to Hebrews 12 before we jump in. So from where we are, take a right. Um, Philemon, then Hebrews, then James. So if you go to the right, past all those T books, Timothy and Titus and Thessalonians, you come to Hebrews 12. If you can't find it, that's okay, but you won't get an A in the class today. Hebrews 12. I'm on the wrong page. Verse 1. Uh, let's see. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, let's, let's skip down. 
to verse four. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, meaning parenthetically, but your Lord did, and for you. Verse five. And you have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's what? Discipline. And do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines those he what? Loves. Right? What father wouldn't discipline his kids? And he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If a father wasn't disciplining his son, you would say he doesn't really, I'm not reading now, I'm talking. He, you would say that dad doesn't really love his kids. Why isn't he disciplining them? Um, and everyone undergoes discipline. Then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Uh, we've all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live. Our fathers, earthly fathers, disciplined us for a little while as, as they thought best. God disciplines us for our own good so that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful later on. However, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. Translation. Have you ever had something happen and you think, is this just happenstance or is God disciplining me and then you remember oh boy I think he's disciplining me because I haven't been dealing with that sin thing that he keeps putting in my mind the Holy Spirit keeps bringing it and people mention it and he's disciplining me instead of being angry at God instead of being resentful and rebellious you know what we should do thank you so much I needed this wake up call right chapter 12 spiritual gifts some of you are really i'm not reading i'm just introducing some of you are really really talented cooks some of you are really good sewing some of you are mechanical and can fix anything some of you are musicians and can play music or have the gift of being able to write eloquent things and none of those are spiritual gifts some of you can build a house and uh, you just have all these other talents. Some of you are extremely athletic. That's not a spiritual gift. What are those things? Talents, abilities. Where did you get them? God gave them to you, but they're not spiritual gifts. Oh, so I don't have to use them for God's glory? No, you can and you should, but they're not spiritual. I have the gift of cooking. Great, but that's not a spiritual gift. Okay, um, this is another issue with the Corinthian church. They're to the max on everything, as we've said. They are extremely spiritually gifted as a church, but they're misusing the gifts. They're cocky about, I have a better gift than you. My dog's bigger than your dog. Remember that better than your, whatever it was. Uh, they are using the gifts in a pagan way. We'll see next week. They are, um, the gifts are causing division and disorder instead of blessing. Every spiritual gift, we're going to look at a bunch of lists next week, probably. Every spiritual gift, listen, is given not for you to get the credit. Every spiritual gift is given for you 
to bless and build up and edify the people in your church. That's why you have the gift. It's not about you. It's about the Holy Spirit and the glory goes to God. They're abusing the gifts of speaking in tongues. There's envy and strife and there's a lot of disorder, as we said. The Holy Spirit figures prominently in this chapter. This church is acting carnally. In Latin, carne means flesh or meat. If you speak Spanish, carne means meat, right? Chile con carne, right? With meat. They're acting fleshly with spiritual gifts. Um, they're like kids with toys instead of valuable tools for adults. That's the problem. They need to mature. So whenever Paul says in this book, now about this, he's referring to their letter where they said, what should we do about this? Now about that subject that you wrote about, that's what he's saying. Look at verse 12. Now about the gifts of the spirit, brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be ignorant or uninformed. And they are. Okay. They would say, oh, no, no, we've got the gifts, man. We are a gifted church. The word for spiritual gifts, um, or now about gifts of the spirit, you see that NIV has gifts of the spirit. Some translations have spiritual gifts, right? Does yours have spiritual gifts there? Verse one. In the Greek, it says, uh, now about the spirituals, gifts is not there. It's implied, the spirituals. Um, and uh, let's see, he calls them brothers and sisters. He doesn't want them to be informed. Verse two, you know that when you were pagans, remember the pagan temples and all the worship and the getting drunk and the sleeping with prostitutes and the ecstatic craziness that went on, they're bringing that into the church. When you were pagans, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to dumb or mute idols. I love that term. Dumb idols. We bow down to this rock carved, this wooden, this thing with pearls. And really? It's mute. Can't speak. Hello. Right? Nothing there, really. Um, let's see. Let's keep reading and then we'll start to talk about it. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be accursed or is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so what the heck is going on here, you ask, number one. Go, go a few pages back and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. From where we are, go to 1 Corinthians 10, and we want verse 20. I just want to remind you what he said about idols. No, verse 20, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to idols, right? Not really. Who are they truly offered to? demons because the demon is behind the idol going bring on the worship i love it call me anything you want zeus apollo i don't care and as long as you don't worship the real god who are they actually sacrificing to they're offered to demons not to god i don't want you to be participants with demons you can't drink the cup of the lord which is the last supper the lord's supper and the cup of demons too you can't have a part in both that's what he was saying in that chapter. Okay, chapter 12. Um, let's say, 
let's see. So what, he's hinting in verse two that they were influenced and led astray to these mute idols. He's hinting that little spiritual cancer is still alive and well in the Corinthian First Baptist Church of Corinth or whatever they were. Evangelicalfreecorinth.com. But here's the weird verse, and then we'll quit. Verse three. I want you to know no one who's speaking by the Spirit of God, okay, meaning the Spirit of God has given me the spiritual gift, and now I'm going to speak forth from the Spirit of God. Anybody, no one can say what he's about to say by the Spirit, which is Jesus is accursed. The word is anathema. Have you ever heard that word before? It means cursed. You say, wait, wait, wait. In church? Yes. Somebody gets up. Yes. I'm the spirit of God is speaking to me. Jesus is accursed or cursed. What? Why would, wouldn't you just be ushers? Could you get Harry out of here? He's drunk or nuts or something. Why would you say that in church? We'll talk more about it next week because we're low on time. But there's a couple theories about this. Number one, Gnosticism, starts with the letter G, believe it or not, was already beginning then, which was the idea that the body, physical body of a human is evil. It's just plain evil. The spirit is good. Jesus was a human being. Yes, we know we believe in Jesus, but we're Gnostics. So we believe that when the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus at baptism, remember that? Yes. And was with him as he was doing the miracles and ministering to people. And yes, and preaching. Yes. The spirit left him before the garden of Gethsemane. So it was just the body. And it was evil in the garden of Gethsemane on the cross, all those trials when he got whipped and he, why are you forsaking me? God, Jesus was accursed on that tree. Now, the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, does say, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And in a sense, he takes the curse for us. But to say Jesus is accursed is the opposite of saying, what does he say at the rest of the verse? Jesus is what? Lord, right? It's, they're two, you can't get more extreme. Like there's people that are on the fence about Jesus. I could take or leave Jesus. Maybe he's God, I don't know. Jesus is accursed is way over here. Jesus is Lord is way over here. You have to admit we're out of time. So we're going to quit. I know you're going, wait, I still don't understand. We'll pick it up next week unless the rapture happens. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this time we could spend. We love you. God, we're just struck by this, the solemn, beautiful, loving, selfless nature of, of the Lord's Supper, God. We're struck by our need to examine ourselves. We're struck by our absolute desire to understand, to remember, do it in remembrance, and to take it seriously with great gratitude, with great love. And that love extends not only vertically up to you, God, and your son, Jesus, but also horizontally to those around us. May we never partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way. May we use the gifts we've been given, which we'll talk about next week, all for your glory and never with a divisive attitude or anything that dishonors you or your son. Bless these truths, Father. May they change the way we live. Thank you for this time. We love you, and we can't wait to see you. Until then, use us for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Make sure you say hello to someone you don't know in this room. Very important.
And those of you on Zoom, God bless you. Thanks for being here. See you next time.